Kiki Wilshire. Hello, welcome to episode 9 of the Lower Error Podcast. I'm David Smith and I'm joined today by Franny Walsh, Marty Gillespie and Oren Fitzpatrick. Welcome lads. Today we're going to be discussing Of Mice and Men, the classic novella by John Steinbeck, so looking forward to that. But uh, before we get stuck into the book, we'll check in with the lads. Happy birthday! Oren, how are you? Happy belated birthday, it was your birthday on Friday. Um, and your good weekend despite lockdown. Thank you very much. Yeah, all good. Obviously still in lockdown here in Sydney, so it was a quiet birthday. Um, I did manage to get myself a, a vaccine though, so consider considered that a success for a weekend. Um, but yeah, that was about the height of it. Um, something similar yourself? Yeah, pretty similar here. Uh, I have my second vaccine tomorrow, so looking forward to getting that sorted. Um, yeah, apart from that, I uh, just went on a couple of walks and runs and plenty of Netflix and a uh, bit of Xbox and stuff, a few takeaways. Um, saw a few whales on a walk yesterday, which is pretty cool. But yeah, other than that, it's been uh, pretty quiet. Not much news to report. Marty, what about you? Things seem to be opening up a bit at home. <laughs> Things are opening up a bit, but it's lashing rain outside, Smith. So a uh, fairly similar situation to yourselves. I'm stuck inside again. <laughs> at least it's voluntary. But no, yeah, but no, things are things are good. It's uh, it's great at the minute. We have the Euros, we have Wimbledon, we have the Championship, and after all that, we're going to have the Olympics. So. And I'm off for the summer, so I'm going to be fairly stuck to the couch. But uh, but yeah, no, I'm actually I'm actually up in Monaghan now for the weekend. And yeah, that's I'll head back today, and that's about as exciting as as it gets for me. The life of a teacher sounds fairly nice, all right. All that story. <laughs> it's not bad. It's not bad. So lucky with the timing as well. The games are on here. Like the England game is at five a.m. this morning. Have to get up for that, and then oh kickoff times are a nightmare. Yeah, in Australia. Franny, are you watching much yeah. of the Euros? How's life with you? Yeah, I was actually at um, England. I was not at it, but I was I was watching England and the Ukraine at an English bar last night. So a few of the group were English. So they were obviously delighted with the result and the Irish people weren't uh, <laughs> as delighted. But uh, that was a bit of crack. That was grand. Yeah, that was that was kind of the, uh, the highlight of my weekend. Now I probably have a fairly chill Sunday. Chill Sunday ahead. Absolutely. I'm off tomorrow actually as well because uh, I work mainly for American companies and today is the 4th of July. So I have a bit of a long weekend as well. So that's grand. It's nice. Happy days. That sounds good. All right, lads, I think we'll move on to discuss the book. So, Marty, this week, could you give us a, a little overview of Of Mice and Men? Yeah, um, so so Mice and Men is set just after the Great Depression, um, probably in certain nineteen thirties America. We follow George and Lenny, two friends who go around working on ranches and um, looking for some, looking for work, um, and their ultimate goal is to have their have a a farm or something of their own, and we just. We follow their journey and see can they achieve it and the, the trials and tribulations of that journey. Yeah, perfectly summed up there. Live off the fat of the land, as they say. Um, That's right. Did you enjoy the book, Marty? Had you read it before or come across it before? Yeah, I really enjoyed it, actually. I, uh, I hadn't read it before. Um, it was a classic, but I hadn't even heard. How, like, you know the way sometimes with with books like that with classics you kind of know what's happening I didn't I didn't know what was happening before I read it um, that said um, from fairly early on I don't I'm not sure quite at what point but I had a good idea of what was going to happen in the end but that didn't ruin my um, experience of the book so to speak you know I thought it was a really good um, really good sign of the writing like how 
how strong the story was that um that even though it uh, even though the events of at the end of the book um were kind of maybe hinted at a little bit the story wasn't was enough to to carry it through to the end and i just really liked i just really liked the how it was written in general i know steinbeck himself said it was written it could be almost a playable novel like you know it's nearly straight away could be nearly taken straight into onto on the stage but i love that way of where there's where the dialogue is so strong through throughout the throughout the book and i love how you know a lot of it's written uh phonemically you know like to to convey the accents or you know that i love that in, in a book i know some people some people find it distracting or don't like it but uh i find it really endearing and uh yeah it just it moved because of that it moved really quick and um it reminded me a bit of the play by the western world in a, in a way just a bit of that uh, of that kind of pace of a book but uh but yeah no i really really enjoyed it yeah yeah that's all really interesting i'm looking forward to delving into it in detail with everyone Oren, i'll come to you next what had you read it before and did you enjoy it overall yes i've read it once before um i read it i think when i just turned 21 obviously it's a classic so you kind of you go into it with as well as expectation it doesn't disappoint like most steinbeck novels i read grapes of wrath there as well the kind of absence of hope, I I always find kind of quite confronting. And um, I don't think there's certainly that that I've read anyway. There's not too many books that just leave you kind of, what the hell just happened there? Like why was there nothing? Why was there nothing in that? Why was there no positivity? And I think the same here. The harsh life lessons and everything. And it's I think it's an important book to read. Yeah, I think I'm I'm really looking forward to this sort of conversation. Yeah, I think I read it when I was around a similar age to you, like you. I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan, and he is a song about the ghost of Tom Joad, the great song which led me to read The Great Sarat and then I loved that so straight away after went on to Mice and Men which I think I actually enjoyed more. Surprise, surprise, I was the exact <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. I was, that was my inspiration as well. Yeah, so conversely to what Martin was saying, I actually like found loads of references kind of growing up in like TV shows or in popular culture too of Mice and Men about like particularly about the rabbits and like references to Lenny and George that maybe kind of went over my head when I was younger. And even in like songs like the Bell X one, you know, song The Great Defector, the Irish band, they have a reference in that about, won't you tell me about the rabbits, George, or something like that. There's loads of little things like that. Franny, had you read it before? Do you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, so I actually first read this book in uh, January of 2018. I went to Rome for the weekend and um, I borrowed the paperback of someone. I can't remember who, but like sort of the flight to Rome was actually long enough. You know, it's two and a bit hours, I think. So, like, you know, we're, we're talking about this book is short. I read the first half of the book on the flight out to Rome. Don't think I read it at all while I was there. And then I read the second half on the flight back, finished it on the flight, and then left the paperback on the plane. So whoever owned that book never got it back, unfortunately. But, um, no, I was I, I really enjoyed this book, yeah. But, like, when the first time I read it, and now again, it's brilliant. Like, it's, and as Orn is saying there, it's very bleak. Kind of, I always like that in a book, that it's not afraid to kind of portray things, like, as they are in real life, you know, and maybe that, like... I don't know, maybe that says something about me, but like I kind of like books or films that really aren't afraid to get their hands dirty like that, that are kind of like, you know, that are willing to discuss life in a way that it is and that are willing to handle difficult themes in a, you know, kind of maybe a depressing way in early at times. 
and obviously that's what this is you know it's it's a kind of a reflection on the human condition and of life in general that's not the most uplifting and that like doesn't really try to to leave you with a happy ending but i mean it's very profound yeah it asks a lot of really kind of difficult questions i think about how we deal with people that are you know that that can't how we help people that can't help themselves and how we deal with people that are a threat to others even though you know like there's they're they don't mean to be necessarily and like the character of Lenny is, you know, it asked some really interesting moral questions, I think, Steinbeck does with, with, with Lenny. And uh, so, but yeah, in, all in all, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I speak very highly of it. Yeah, I really like what you said there about like the gritty nature and not being afraid. And I promise that's my last Bruce Springsteen reference on the podcast. But uh, uh, he had a great line before where he said he saw his career as like charting the distance between the American dream and the American reality. And I always found that like the Steinbeck books very much did that. I think that really kind of rings true for his writing as well. Uh, just what you're saying there about uh, Lenny, Franny. When he when he first handed in this, this to the publishers, they really didn't like how, how he presented Lenny. I don't know whether it was because he was too, as you say, too clear or wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty on the topic or whether it was the fact that someone like Lenny was in uh, in a novel. But his response to them was to say that Lenny wasn't supposed to represent an insane character. That's literally what he said, an insane character. But to represent the inarticulate and powerful yearnings of all men, which I thought was very interesting. It's a really nice way of, of spending it then, you know? I think a lot of it's informed as well by Steinbeck's own experience where he did work on ranches and stuff in the 20s. I saw some stat, I was reading an essay about Steinbeck where apparently, like, it could have been, uh, this is a ballpark figure, but it was like 22% of people in the study were quote-unquote, feeble-minded was the term in the study at the time. So, like, there probably was a lot of people like Lenny um, who maybe had learning difficulties or whatever and fell on tough times that were in this situation. So it, it, it's a very clever way of portraying the overall teams, I think. Um, Smith, you were saying there, this is based a lot on Steinbeck's actual experiences. And Lenny is based on a person he, he knew himself from his travels around the ranches. He befriended this person who, you know, was similar to Lenny. Lenny's emotions and Lenny's childlike, childlike demeanor, but like the physical strength and all that. And his friend got fired uh, by the ranch bus, and his response to that was to take a take a pitchfork to him and drive it straight through his sternum. And that was that fella uh, was inspiration for Lenny. Actually, he's ended up obviously in a in an asylum himself. But again, that's what the term was back then. But yeah, there's a lot of a lot of what's in the book is informed by what Steinbeck saw on the ranches. And that's interesting because you mentioned how you love the dialogue and stuff and how it kind of yeah. really sucks you into the story. But obviously that's coming from his experience as well as it is probably realistic and gritty because he, he's been there and seen it. Yeah, and I really liked how, you know, especially when the men who were staying in the bunks, like, you know, when they were talking to each other, the phonemic spelling or whatever was much more prevalent than whenever they were talking to, say, Curly or to, even with Slim, you know why Slim is this kind of wise, slightly wiser character, like, you know, it's kind of... He commands uh, respect. Clear. Yeah, exactly, yeah. thought that was really interesting. It's interesting too, I think, that, like, the fact that he's a main character and the fact that it's such a kind of, um, you know, a weighty kind of important theme that he's dealing with, that it's informed by, like, a real experience, because, like, I think it asks such real important questions, like, societally about like how we kind of how we manage people i suppose that are kind of like 
And I know, I, I know one of the big controversies around this book historically has been the discussion around euthanasia and that it was seen to promote it to a certain extent. And like, I, I suppose it's interesting that that came up in the context of a real person because like, I think it's easy to kind of forget that, you know, and it was the, the word articulate was mentioned there as well. I kind of wanted to talk about that. And like, I think that a failure to be able to articulate stuff it doesn't necessarily mean that your human experience is any less profound or like that, that your happiness is any less profound or your sadness. And like, he does a really good job of kind of asking, how do we manage these people? Like, what do we do with them when there's, when there's no place for them to go? What a great way to speak about the human condition in a stripped back way by using a character like Lenny. Because my impression, anyway, with, with all the characters in the book, and it didn't matter whether you were slim, curly, whoever, like Lenny, the kind of the most basic of humans, he still had that yearning for happiness and you know a simple life on his farm with rabbits and more than enough to keep him going I think isn't that what most humans want it was interesting there Fanny you mentioned euthanasia and how it's kind of happened twice in the book really um, the first time with Candy's old dog <laughs> I actually felt really bad and that's uh and that scene, particularly for Candy, you know, his face in the wall. And that. But the dog actually is supposed to represent a few other things too. Like apparently it's, it's a representation or a reflection of what it was like for migrant workers at the time. And even I suppose some, some would say so now that once they, they were used for a single purpose and when that purpose was completed or they couldn't complete it anymore, they were just cast aside. And that kind of happens with Candy as well. Like he, you know, his arm, he lost an arm anyway, and his sole job was to, to sweep the dormitory or whatever you call the place they were staying. You know, he has a real fear of when he can't, when he can't do it anymore. And, you know, when he's going to be cast aside and he's going to be lonely and that, he really wants to join in with Lenny and George on their conquest to have their own their own land, as you say, Smith, to live off the fat of the land, just to have a friendship and to avoid the loneliness. Yeah, like the dogs is such a clever touch. I think the use of animals in this book, like for such a short book, is amazing. Like from the mice very early on with Lenny, where he's stroking them, you find out that he does it too hard and he kills them or whatever. And then the dogs, like I hadn't even thought about that thing about the aging migrant workers. Steinbeck's actual dog ate his first draft of Mice Men, and there wasn't a backup copy, so he had to rewrite it all himself. Not that the dog is based on his dog, but it just thought it was. I thought you were going to say, so he shot the dog after. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, it's not. Yeah. That's the original. The dog ate my homework story. Um, yeah, just on the dog as well. It is really interesting. Obviously, like then it foreshadows the end of the story in a massive way. And even I think you mentioned it earlier, Marty, how Carlson actually shoots Candy's dog and then it's mentioned after Candy kind of wished he did it himself which plays on George's mind afterwards uh, I thought that was really clever and just the whole way animals were used like I don't know if anyone read about how the title of the book came about yes the title actually comes from a poem or from a segment from a poem by Robert Burns where it says the best laid schemes of mice and men gang aft clay which means often go awry that poem is a, it's like a it's like a eulogy to um, it's from this farmer who's ploughing the land and he accidentally ploughs through a mice nest and he feels so bad he writes this poem in, in memory of them. Um, I think the whole concept of like the fat of the land, like this being their 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 big goal is like to have their to have land that they own and to to support themselves from it. I think it's a uh, I suppose in an Irish context, like as an Irish person reading it, it's, it kind of hits home because that idea of land ownership and the self-sufficiency that comes with that, it's something that's really built into our history, I suppose. But it's kind of, I suppose as well then, it's kind of, you look at it from the point of view of the, of the, of the human experience of that and it's, 
you know, even George and Lenny, despite to be very different and despite they having different mental capabilities, they're still equally motivated by this idea of just having land and rabbits or whatever it is, but just this idea of having land and being able to support yourself. And there's something kind of very profound about that, I think. Do you think, Franny, that they both wanted it for the same reason? Like, do you, I kind of felt that Lenny just wanted this simple, stress-free life with all of these lovely things that made him you know, feel happy. Whereas maybe George wanted the things that you talked about there, like the, the feeling of having your own land, like something to call your own or to, you know, run your own land. I don't know. What do you, what did you think? I suppose there's definitely a greater degree of sophistication the way that George wants it. Like he obviously understands more what it's about and he has a greater understanding of what's needed and of what goes into it. And I suppose maybe the satisfaction that comes with that to a certain extent, like he understands the concept of working hard for your, you know, to, to provide for yourself. Whereas Lenny, as you say, is probably motivated more so by just, you know, having maybe distractions and nice things to do at his time. But I still think it's, it's, it's a kind of a uniting force between the two of them that they have the same motivation and even though it has different, there are different reasons behind it and the specifics to it might be different. I kind of thought there was something really just like simple and, and, and kind of special about that. I thought it was quite tragic though as well um, because like they mentioned several times throughout the book that everyone has this dream but most guys like don't actually do it and they never do but they think they'll be different. Yeah, I kind of thought it was symbolic that they're all caught up in this really difficult situation and the way the Dust Bowl probably was or like the Great Depression where their dreams were almost insignificant compared to the system or whatever. Like they were still corrupted, chewed up and spit out essentially by, by how hard the times were. I thought it was a wee bit tragic that, like that, as you said there, everybody was after this, you know, plot of land um, to live off it. But what was really, what would really sustain them was the companionship and the friendships. So for, you know, for Candy, it was his dog and he was just shot like not even a second thought, and the same with Lenny. And none of the characters seem to realise that the most important thing, I think Slim and George did to a certain extent, but none of them seem to realise that companionship was more important than getting to the end point, than getting the plot of the land, than living off it. Like so, like Lenny and George did, if they had each other, that was more than enough. They didn't actually need the plot of land. Nice to have the dream, but that was it. I kind of thought that was even more hopeless, not getting the land at all, was not realising that you didn't even need it in the, in, in the end. Yeah, Steinbeck has said himself like about how it's all about just understanding if you understand your fellow man like that's the secret to life basically and I think that's a great point you mentioned Oren like that really rings true from that as much as George I love I think every second line he said was Jesus Christ for about the first half of the novel when he's dealing with Lenny but like as much as he infuriates him and yeah life he keeps talking about life would be easier like if you weren't here or whatever like he needed Lenny as much as Lenny needed him in a lot of ways. I thought that just as you were saying there, that uh, George was getting frustrated with Lenny, but I thought it was important to show that to you. You know, he was probably one of the only people in Lenny's life. Obviously, in this book, he's the only person we see who really cares or you know shows any concern for him at all. And it's a it's a big weight when you're the only only person to try and look after someone like someone like Lenny. So uh, I thought it was important that it showed. George's frustration too, you know. I thought the funniest part, part of the book was where Lenny threatens to run off then and live in the woods and find the cave and stuff after he keeps trying to bring the mouse back to the camp in like the first couple of chapters and then uh, talking about the rabbits and all that and just before they drift off to sleep Lenny throws in some big like but like I, I can still run off George like no problem <laughs> I can still go off to the cave or whatever it was like Steinbeck gave him great depth despite his outward simplicity I thought which was really meaningful. I thought it was interesting there, men, that all of the characters in the book, I feel, seem to 
just living this kind of hopeless cycle. So for me, anyway, that was one of the more powerful sides of Steinbeck's writing was that he managed to create this repetition and really kind of hammer home that hopelessness, that kind of despair without it becoming boring at all. The likes of Crooks there, who was living on his own, he had no power or control to stop people coming into his dorm, get rid of them. He, you know, he, he'd nothing. He wasn't accepted there at all. Same with um, Carly's wife, like she'd no identity, but they were all willing then to kind of, for want of a better phrase, to kind of begrudge each other, like, you know, they'd all kind of put each other down. They wouldn't give any hope to, to each other at all, so. Yeah, well, that's right. Like, I, I actually kind of felt particularly bad for uh, for Carly's wife. Like, as you mentioned, like, she's not, she's not named, and, you know, I suppose, obviously, Steinbeck doesn't name her, but none of the, none of the other male characters in the book name her either. You know, it just kind of shows that disrespect they had for her, or the lack of respect, I suppose, is a better term for it. If she's only referred to as Curly's wife, like as a possessive and the, and, and the possessive, like, you know, as you said, like that hopeless kind of cycle or whatever, you know, she had married Curly, obviously in the hope of a happy marriage. But, you know, it, it probably would have been seen as advantageous to get married to a, the son of a landowner or the son of a ranch owner. But as life goes on for her, she is left feeling lonely. She doesn't get the affection from Curly. Curly doesn't, Curly, we don't really see any interaction between Curly and his wife other than them looking for each other. And, you know, I suppose that lack of affection might explain why she could be seen as, as flirtatious with the rest of the men. And the men see her as trouble as a result of that. But they also see her as trouble purely as being a result of being the wife of Curly, you know, which I thought was, uh, that was interesting. As you said, just, it was really bleak, a really bleak, bleak, bleak life. I didn't know whether to blame her or Curly for that. Like, I kind of felt the rest of the guys wouldn't talk to her more out of fear of Curly than, you know, not, not wanting to accept her, you know, and even referring to her as Curly's wife. To me, it just seemed like he was the most important because they'd get in trouble from him. And then, I don't know, I, I didn't know what to think about the whole, wasn't it, of, of Vaseline? He kept his one hand in a Vaseline glove and was he, was he struggling with impotence or something like that? Was that to kind of hint at there? And he, I, I don't know that I think way too much into that. Maybe that says something about me. So it was something, it was definitely, there was definitely something sexual, but I can't work out exactly what it was, but it was something to do with, I think what it was with like the Vaseline, was to keep his hand soft and, you know, that would be more desirable than his, you know, chapped and rough hand from working about the rant. Yeah, maybe to make himself be more desirable to his wife. I think maybe that was what it was implying, but I don't know. I think it's a status thing as well, where it's like the kind of upper classes would have the soft hands and then the maybe the workers would have the callous, coarse hands from all their manual work. So I think it was mentioned that, Curly's dad when they met him first was wearing a pair of gloves as well so I think it was as much a status thing but also yeah I think it's hinted at like there's a bit of toxic masculinity about him as well and oh, he's a good fighter he's a good boxer and he made the finals and stuff but uh, I thought just to speak to what you said Oren about like everyone's in this hopeless cycle a little fun fact I sound like Marty now but uh, one of the I enjoyed that the town that was it was like the ranch was three miles south over something that's called Soledad which is a Spanish word for solitude my Duolingo lessons uh finally paying off there but um finally but yeah i thought that was interesting and just about curly's wife's name i kind of thought it was a good a symbol for her kind of lack of autonomy or identity 
she had these dreams I thought was interesting where she was saying like I wanted to be in Hollywood and an actress and all this so she her dream like whereas Lenny and George had this dream of the farm and the rabbits and everything her dream was to be like to be known and to be famous on in this ranch life that she gets sucked into she's nameless in fact she's the complete opposite like she doesn't even have that first name she had the lack of autonomy but then she was quick to be very cruel to crooks and call them the n-word and say like I can have you strung up or whatever it was some incredibly uh, racially insensitive term or racist term when he basically just wanted her to get out of his room and like you said people not necessarily they're all in solitude not lonely but not helping each other either like happy to begrudge each other they're all stuck in this like vicious cycle which was really profound and sad I thought people think the worst of each other throughout the novel the whole time so like for example when Slim goes off to was it like fix the mules and um, hoof or something and then Curly assumes everyone assumes he's with Curly's wife because they've been seen chatting no one uh, people are indifferent at the end when George is has to kill Lenny or Lenny's found dead and um, they say what's eating those guys when George and Slim are clearly upset uh, as I mentioned earlier and like Curly's wife not giving crooks any help either and even when when Lenny and George get there you mentioned like identities earlier marty and how uh, candy like is referred to as the old man for a long time and george is really suspicious he thinks candy's been eavesdropping on them outside the door a lot of the interactions and their gossip and everyone's saying no, you better not tell anyone this or they're almost afraid to be open with each other which just kind of like again is why how they're stuck in this endless cycle of loneliness and just misery yes yeah, you said there um about when the whole gang came across came across george and slim after after Lenny had been shot, and uh, I, it's one of the Slim is actually one of the only other characters that shows any sort of compassion or like French like willingness to befriend any any anyone else in the, in the novel. Other like other than George and Lenny, there's no clear companionship. But at the end, you see you see Slim sliding into that role, like where he's he's consoling George and he's saying, you know, look. Uh, it had to happen and he, he could clearly empathise and understand why why George had to kill Lenny as sad as it was but yeah I just thought that was interesting that, that Slim was the only other character that we saw with Bidet Compassion I suppose actually if you can if you considered Candy and his dog were really the only, they were the only other pair then as well they, he obviously had a lot of compassion for his little his little madra and sadly enough, the dog and Lenny are the two characters who end up dead then. Who, uh, That's it, yeah. Both. But I thought Slim also showed good traits earlier in the book where um, Lenny was out playing with the pups in the barn and people were commenting on it and Slim was saying he's doing no harm or whatever. So like he, he was willing, one of the few willing to see the better sides of people or not to think ill of everyone, which so I suppose spoke to his strength as a character. be a horrible way to live, wouldn't it? You know, just that constantly looking over your shoulder, constant fear, you know, there's no, it's no life really. I guess that's probably part of the book as well as history now, but I know Franny touched on it earlier on, saying as from an Irish point of view, you know, how many of our ancestors, you know, traveling abroad or that sort of thing, who do you trust, who can you trust? I, I think, yeah, for me anyway, it, it, it added to that just kind of general um, despair from the book, which is constantly there. In a, in a kind of low despair level. is the right word. I think the saddest thing for me was that they actually had started to band together and like, you know, they'd expanded the group to they're all going to work together towards this idyllic dream of the firm. And then when it's so tantalizingly close within reach is when things go really wrong. And like, you're, you're not left with the idea after like Lenny dies, you know, it's not exactly a silver lining ending or anything. You're not sure is George going to, is he going to get off, get out of this life and actually find somewhere or will he even want to without Lenny. So 
pretty gloomy, but realistic and gritty, as you've all said. That's it. And it's not, it's not someone actually doing something kind of bad, we'll say. You know, Lenny hasn't intentionally gone out to, to murder somebody or to, to kill somebody. But, um, you know, it's, it's kind of faith. And again, that just adds to the despair that it's, it's just as if life is conspiring against them, no matter what they do, no matter how much they come together, no matter how hard they work. And something will eventually just um, put them back right back in it. He reminded me, Slim actually reminded me a bit of Matthew McConaughey. I was like, well, not really reminded me of that's who I had in my head when, when Slim was talking. Um, there was a little passage there that said, his ear heard more than was said to him, and his slow speech had overtones not of thought, but of understanding beyond thought. And I just had Matthew McConaughey in True Detective in my head the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, um, I just finished watching True Detective, and yeah, I can see that. What a show! What oh, a yeah, show! It's unbelievable. Particularly after reading, I, I've just listened to uh, Where the Crawdads Sing, and it's all set in the marsh and all that. And oh, yeah, I was loving it. That's it. That's what I was on about there. They're on or about the dialogue, you know, the dialogue. Well, I'm only on chapter three of Crawdads, Crawdads like, but the. Uh, I love that that dialogue, the these the phenomenic, phonemically spelt words there, you know. Um, I, but it's well, I listened to it and it wrecked my head listening to it. <laughs> and I to declare afterwards, I wish I read this book because you don't have to listen to somebody else do the action. <laughs> but I do agree with you. I do yeah. generally like it. Yeah. Another felt like when I when I was thinking of Lenny, I always had John Coffey in my head, you know, from the Green Mile. Yeah. You know, John, what's his name again? Michael Clark Duncan. Michael Clark yeah. Duncan, that's Duncan. his name, yeah. Yeah, one part that I thought that really like highlighted friendship between Lenny and George uh, was early on where I think George might have been between George and Slim and George is explaining about a time where he thought it'd be funny to tell her Lenny to jump into a river. And he says, I said, jump in. And he jumped. He couldn't swim a stroke. He damn near drowned before he could get him. And he was so damn nice to me for pulling him out. Clean forgot I told him to jump in. I thought that was so sad, but like so touching, so sweet. And then like George learned from that and never did it again. But like just Len- Lenny's like innocent belief in everyone. Like he's so, his lack of cynicism compared to everyone else who's been so like molded by this tough world that it's like, it's worn them down, but he's too naive almost and just touchingly innocent to kind of buy into it. He sees the good in everything rather than everyone else in the in the in the story, as you say, is so cynical. Like they can can't help but think that there's something something awry or there's some catch with every every action they take or every relationship they make. All the, all the good it does not huh? I really liked the bit, um, there was a, a phrase there after Lenny had thrown uh, Curly's wife aside. And you know that, you know that, that like moment in time where something has happened and time is still, and I thought it really described it very well. As happens sometimes, a moment settled and hovered and remained for much more than a moment. But when I was reading it, I, I could really imagine that. Oh fuck! That kind yeah. Of, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, that was really suspenseful. I think yeah, you were like you could immediately sense the consequences in that split second of like that everything was going to unfold. Uh, Franny, was there any moments or quotes that kind of you took away from it or stood out to you? Um, my favorite moment in the book, I'd say, was when the dog died or the wet one was was put down. Um, I just felt 
that there was like as we've, as we've discussed, there's a huge sense of despair in this book, and like there's a you know it's very negative in the way it deals with things. And I thought obviously this was another example of that, probably maybe even the best example of that. And there was like a real culmination of, of all that. And like you really got the um you really got the sense of Candy's um like you know his despair and like his his misery at this happening. But again, it's this idea that like these are just things that maybe necessarily have to happen for the functioning of life or society or whatever but it's it was just yeah something about that scene really really brought home the bleakness of the whole of the whole book to me no just on that um you were saying these things had to happen for for life to continue there's a i think slim says it when george sh- shoots lenny and his comment is oh you had it you had it and um, yeah it's just it, it's almost as if slim is the kind of as as marty mentioned earlier the kind of the all-knowing sort of thing and um, character in the book and he kind of says yeah you have to shoot Lenny it's just just that yeah that's despair but it has to happen for life to go on. There was one quote I really liked that kind of uh, just summed up what we were saying about the lack of companionship or trust between the characters where I think it might have been George who said who said ain't many guys travel around together I don't know why maybe everybody in the whole damn world is scared of each other and such simple prose like throughout the book but like really hard-hitting and like profound for its simplicity almost but I just there's a couple like that there's another speech about a guy gets lonely if he doesn't have someone and then he gets sick which I really liked as well all right lads it's time for our usual rate expectations I think we're in for some high scores this week judging on the feedback and all our thoughts so far uh Oren I'll start with you and um, what's your rating for mice and men and why but I'll, I'm just gonna write it on my enjoyment from from this reading sort of thing as i said i've read it before i kind of knew what i was getting myself in for and um, read it again and it was no less hard hitting and um, so i'm going to go with i'll go with an 8.5 and um, i'd say clear the upper echelons but it's definitely a, definitely a classic definitely on the list of books that you should read and um, before you die sort of thing and um yeah just no more needs to be said of it uh, yeah, I love this book. I love the one I first read it and I really enjoyed it this time again. I thought, um, like as I was saying earlier, maybe it's kind of a reflection of my personality, but I think the negativity and like the, the kind of despair is just, it's really like, it's really hard hitting and it's really kind of, it's really real, I suppose. That's the best, that's the best way to put it. And also as a writer, I mean, like, as we were discussing a couple of, a couple of the, of, of the quotes and the, and the stylistic things he does, as he's, he's brilliant that way as well, you know, it's so readable and it's so, it's so gripping. And so, yeah, it's, a, it's going to be a nine for me. Yeah, I just echo pretty much what, what Franny would say there. Like, I really, really enjoyed it. And, you know, I hadn't read it before, as I said earlier on. And, but it flowed really, really well from, from start to finish. Um, I really, really love books with as much dialogue as, as this book has. And, as I've mentioned about 20 times already, I love how the accent and the, the you know, colloquialisms of, of, of the ranch ranch working came across. Yeah, I think I'll, I'm going to score, give it a high score too. I'm going to give it an eight as well. Um, I loved it. As the guys mentioned, I was a similar boat where I'd read it when I was younger, but it was one of those books where I got sucked back into it again and loved reading it again and like following all the foreshadowing with the dog being killed and then mirroring Lenny's death and a lot of little things like that and also yeah like the the, uh, the use of language and how believable it is and I think Steinbeck like when I read like a great voice for like the the disenfranchised or the disenchanted uh, in America so I, I always enjoy reading those kind of gritty stories so for all those reasons I think I'm going to give it an eight as well so it's high scores all around this week for 
of mice and men? That is an 8.3 average from the lower hour boys. Very good. It's a very high score. Um, yeah, I think, as Sean mentioned, it's a book, as you said, or a book to read for you, Diane. It's so short. You can read it in a day or two, like Animal Farm. Um, so this is the third book we've done in our classic section. Uh, if you've missed the earlier episodes, we've also done Animal Farm by George Orwell and Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. So don't forget to check those out as well on lairera.com. Before we wrap up, lads, just wondering, is there anything else anyone's reading? I just finished um, The Stand by Stephen King, actually, last night. It was a big book. It took me a while, but uh, very enjoyable. It's like a, about a pandemic, a super flu, actually. It was written in 1980, but it feels very current. A super flu that wipes out most of the population in America and then how kind of society tries to rebuild itself and stuff, I suppose. But uh, yeah, very interesting book. I definitely recommend it. Is anyone else reading anything good? Um, I just finished uh, Scar Tissue by Anthony Kiedis. At, uh, he's a lead singer out of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I think he wrote the book back in like 2006 or seven or something like that. But it's you come to the end of it and it's it, it's it's a complete mystery to you how them lads ever managed to record an album because <laughs> it's just stuff <laughs> they used to get up to. But uh, yeah, so the book, it's it's a brilliant book. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're a fan of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, like it's very interesting to see uh, what went into the production of all that music, I suppose. But yeah, crazy stuff. Um, I'm also just after starting uh, SBQR, which is uh, the, the history of ancient Rome. So that one will probably take me a while, I'm sure. It's fairly fairly heavy. So uh, yeah, that's that's my reading at the moment. Very good, yeah. Big contrast there between books. Um, Marty, what about you? Uh, yeah, I'm just coming towards the end of a book called The Dictionary of Lost Words. And I have to say, it, it's it's looking like it's probably the best book I've read this year so far. I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, it's about this girl, Esme. Um, it's set in the uh, early 20th century. Her father is a lexicographer, and he is part of the team of men who are writing the Oxford Dictionary. And um, they are deciding what words what words um, should make it into the dictionary and what words shouldn't. And Esme kind of becomes privy as to why these words are chosen and why they're, why some aren't. Uh, a lot of the words chosen, uh, a lot of the words that are omitted are uh, still, are words that would still be commonly used, um, but her investigations lead to um, some interesting discoveries. Uh, and then, you know, it's set against the, it's set against the background of women's suffrage and then into, into World War One. And uh, I'm just, I'm absolutely loving it. It's a fantastic book. Thinking of getting it uh, during the week and I think you've sold me on it now. Oren, last but not least, what are you reading at the moment? I'm about halfway through The Third Policeman by Flan O'Brien. It's absurdism, absurdism at its finest, uh, pure bizarre. It's, uh, I'm not sure if you've read any Flan O'Brien before. I read That Swim Two Birds a number of years ago and it confused the hell out of me. And this book, it's, it's about people who basically turn into bicycles the more they ride them. And their DNA gets, gets intertwined in that. And it's, it's gas. It's, it's a fantastic book. I think that even sells it short, that description. But uh, definitely well worth the read. Or if you're looking for a break from something serious or after after Fanny's Fanny's history ancient Rome, it could be a good one there to, to tackle just as something a palate cleanser almost, but something fantastic in itself. Yeah, what a what a, a wide range of recommendations here, which is great to see. Um, there's another one 
I want to read uh, Tuesdays with Mari. My dad had recommended it to me, but I was having trouble getting it on the Kindle, but I uh, must give that a go soon. Uh, and also, we should mention, now is a good time to mention uh, that for episode 10, which is going to be our season one finale of the Lower Era podcast, uh, thanks to everyone who took part in our social media polls to help us narrow down from five books which book we'd focus on. So we're, we've opted for, or well, you've chosen, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. So yeah, read along with us and let us know what you think or if you already read it. So we'll be back with that in a couple of weeks' time for season one finale. And as always, thanks for interacting and getting in touch on social media and over on the website. And uh, yeah, give us a shout over on lairar.com or on our social media pages if you want to get in touch or you have any feedback or ideas. It's all appreciated and we'll see you soon. Bye.